Vincent Werbeck's Derby. Let's jump into Acts chapter 12. It is a brilliant, brilliant story. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. I hope you stay with it. I think this story is laced with comedic genius. You may not find it as funny as I do on initial reading. And it's always when you have to explain the joke, does it make it funnier? But let's jump straight in. Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord had sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, She was so overjoyed, she just ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had, brought, had, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon and, and the They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, or Blastus, depending on what part of the country you're from, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace. Because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the anointed 
appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. What an amazing, bonkers story. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this incredible story we've just read. We thank you for the miracles that we've heard. And we thank you for the truths that we find in this. And we pray now, Lord, that you will speak to each and every one of us through this passage, by the power of your Spirit, into our lives right here, right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as we start this evening, I want you all to know um, I love my wife very much. I really do. Okay? She's an amazing woman. We've been married for 16 and a bit years, coming up to our 17th anniversary this summer. Um, I am clearly punching way out of my league. She is amazing. She's an incredible mother of three. And um, we're, currently we're on the marriage course. So having been married for 16 years, it's just good for us to have a bit of an MOT and to think about our marriage. And it's great. And we're having, um, basically, it's just an extra date night in the week to spend some time talking about our relationship. But um, I love her every now and again. Just, actually, it's becoming a little bit more frequent. She's a little bit annoying. Like, like, actually majorly annoying. And the reason she's annoying is because Anna is a grammar police. She, she corrects my grammar. Mid-sentence, it's not even that she's correcting my written grammar, which of course needs a lot of help, but she just, I'm in the middle of conversation, and she'll stop me and tell me the correct word that I should have used. And um, it annoys me. It really, really annoys me. Now, I, I, my excuse behind this, by the way, is that I think that there was a period of time where the government decided that they just wouldn't teach grammar to people, and I was of that generation where grammar was not told, taught to me. So there you go, told, taught, whatever. Um, now, obviously, the observant amongst you will realize that my wife is of the same generation as me. It's just that she's a nerd, and... Um, <laughs> no, I joke, I joke. Uh, she studied English at degree level, so she, she knows what she's talking about. I barely scraped my GCSE English. Um, so I will say things like, I've got to get this the right way around, I've done it three, twice already today. I was stood there, and she'll say standing. I, I don't know if that's the correct way around. Matt, where are you? Have I got that right? I was sat there, no, you're sitting and the worst one is when we get in the car to go somewhere, and I say, where are we headed? And she goes, heading. And I'm like, I don't care right now. I just need to know which road I'm supposed to be driving on. It's so annoying. It is so annoying. And now she knows that I'm annoyed. She finds it funny. <laughs> and so at every single opportunity, Anna will correct my grammar. 
there's nothing I can do to stop her because I'm not clever enough and I don't know the correct words. I don't even know when I'm doing it wrong. So she just corrects me. But I know if I say this, she will do it again. She will do that same action again. I wonder whether you know of people in your life, people close to you, where if you do a certain thing, they will act in the same repeated way again. Because you know them. You know what pushes their buttons. You know how they respond to certain things. You know that they will just do it again. They will be exactly the same. That's who they are. They just, they just repeat that. I wonder whether you know what the things are that you do. That you just do again and again and again because that is who you are. Now, some of you, as you hear me say that, will immediately go to the negative type of thing in your mindset. You know, you know some of the, the selfish things that you, how you respond in certain ways. You know that um, the patterns of addiction or sin or things that just kind of, okay, I've, I've gossiped once about someone, so I, I know that I can just do it again, and then I can do it again, and then I do it again. And then actually, it builds up this issue of how we speak about other people because we've, I've done it again, and I'll do it again. But sometimes, actually, it's about the positive. Maybe you've done something and you've achieved something and you thought, well, I've, I've done that once. Maybe I can do it again. And I know that even now, as I'm about to say the next sentence, and there are members of my team who know what's about to come because they know I've done it before and I will do it again. Um, I'm going to use the fact that I've run a marathon as a sermon illustration. The first time I ran a marathon... I thought I was going to die. I genuinely thought I was never going to make it. This is not going to work. I'm going to die. But I did it once, very slowly. And I thought, I can do it again. I can repeat that and do it again. And so I did. I did two marathons, Andy. How many have you done? None? Brilliant. Just just thought I'd throw that one out there. Um, You do it again. Sir Clive Woodward who was the um, coach of the England rugby team when we won the World Cup in 2003. He, in his book, talking about how they got England to win the World Cup, he talks about how he changed the mentality that um, within a kind of rugby culture, the idea was that if you won the game of rugby, you went down the pub and you celebrated with a few beers, sometimes more than just a few. But if you lost the game of rugby, you kind of locked yourself in the changing rooms and you shut the doors and you ripped it apart. How did we lose this? What went wrong? Whose fault was it? How do we make sure we don't do that again? Whereas Sir Clive Woodward says that he twisted that round. And for a season, for a while, when England um, lost a game of rugby, he said, oh, let's just go to the pub, forget about it. But when England won a game of rugby, he said, what did we do so that we can do it again? So that we can keep winning? I wonder what are the things that you do where you think, I, I do it again, I can do it again, whether negative or positive. The story, story even, that we've read this evening from Acts chapter 12, screams, do it again. All the way through the text, if you understand the background, the history of what's going on, is a group of people who are gathering together saying, do it again. To give you some context to understand why I say that, um, it starts, the story starts with Herod. Now this is, I've got to get this right, Herod Agrippa. This is the third Herod that you might have come across if you've read any of the New Testament. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, 
and the son of Herod Antipas. And it's unknown whether it was Herod the Great or Herod Antipas who was ruling over Israel when Jesus was born. You know when the, the three wise men turned up and they brought their gifts and they went to Herod and Herod got upset because a king had been born and then he said, right, just go and kill all the babies. We don't know whether that was Herod the Great or Herod Antipas. But at some point, um, Herod Agrippa becomes Herod. He is the grandson or the son of. And he oversaw... John the Baptist being beheaded. He oversaw the the death of Jesus. And now he is overseeing what he believes to be the persecution of the church. Those who are following Jesus. Those who are saying that Jesus was the Son of God who came to earth, who lived amongst us, who died a sinner's death, who then rose and defeated death, rose to life so that we can have life. And those who were proclaiming the resurrected Jesus and saying that you can have forgiveness of sins and you can be in relationship with God because of this Jesus, Herod, whichever name he is, was saying, I don't like that. I'm going to stamp this out. We're going to have them killed. And so he gathered, first of all, James, brother of John, nicknamed Sons of Thunder, you can't get a better nickname than that, by the way. And he gets James, and he has him killed by a sword. And so some of the Jewish people who are saying that your worldview of Jesus being the Son of God who, was, who died and then rose to life um, is changing our whole system, our whole world, and we don't like it. And some of those Jews were like, yes, you've killed James, now go and kill Peter. Peter, James, and John were kind of Jesus' three closest friends. Out of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John were his closest three. They went up the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transformed before their very eyes. They were the ones who were called into the most intimate of places, and he's killed James. Now let's get Peter. And so they throw Peter into jail, but it's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is the uh, celebration of Passover in the Jewish mind. And so they, uh, it's the same time that happened when Jesus was uh, crucified. It's the time where the Jews are celebrating that, um, that they were taken out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of uh, being confined by a foreign ruler and into freedom into the promised land that God had passed over their homes and had saved them. And because it's Passover, Herod can't just kill Peter. He has to throw him in jail. But he is so adamant that he's going to persecute Peter. He puts four times four, 16 soldiers on guard, watching him, knowing that when it gets to the end of Passover celebration, he is going to put Peter up into public trial. And so verse 5, the church gathered and they prayed earnestly for Peter. Now, earnest is a bit of a weird word, isn't it? It's a word that I don't think we use too often anymore unless you're perhaps Anna or Matt or some kind of grammar police that will tell you the correct use of the word. Um, uh, Or earnest is an old man's name, isn't it? That's, That's how I think of it. Anyway, they were praying earnestly for Peter. And because of their prayers, the miracle happens. This unbelievable miracle happens. Firstly, an angel turns up. Peter is lying between two soldiers and this bright light 
And this angel arrives, but that wasn't enough to wake up Peter. He, the angel has to actually kind of tap him on the shoulder and say, wake up. And oh, by the way, put on some clothes. There is an angel talking to a naked man. I'm sorry, if no one else finds that funny, I do. And he says, get up. And as he says, get up, he gets up and the chains fall off and he puts his clothes on and they start walking out past the soldiers, through gates that were locked, that were just miraculously opened, and into freedom. And all the while, Peter's still thinking, this is some kind of vision, this is some kind of weird moment. But as he heads out down the street, the angel disappears, and Peter kind of comes to his senses and goes, I'm free. I'm actually free. God has delivered me into freedom. He has passed over and saved me. And so Peter goes to find um, friends. He goes to find people who've been praying for him, and he knocks on the door, and bless her, Rhoda turns up. I don't think she turns up in any other part of Scripture, but this poor woman goes to the door and gets so excited that Peter, the person they've been praying for, is actually at the door and not in prison and about to be murdered, that she just runs away. She just leaves him there. I mean, she leaves him knocking on the door as though she's lost her mind. And so she goes back to the disciples and says, look, Peter's outside. And they're like, you are out of your mind. There is not a chance that Peter's out there. That must be his angel. And Peter keeps knocking. And then they're like, oh, maybe she's right. Maybe she's right. And so they go and they meet Peter and he comes in and he tells them what's happened. He keeps them quiet. And then, of course, he disappears because he knows if he stays there, he'll be captured again. But as he disappears, morning comes. And Luke is the comic genius expertise. This is like the highlight of the whole thing where he underplays something massively. And in verse, I think it's uh, 18, we read, In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. No small commotion. He had 16 soldiers on him. Peter's got up and walked out of a locked cell bound by chains. I'm thinking it's more than a small commotion. I'm guessing he is going apoplectic. There is, I mean, he's going absolutely nuts. And there is shouting and they're screaming. And where is he? So much so that Herod has the soldiers executed for failure to do their job. Herod then can't work out what this is all about, so he goes off to deal with some kind of uh, other parts of the world, other Tyre and Sidon, and he's trying to do some kind of deal with them to give them food, and they all think he is God, and he accepts the praise that he is God. And so once again, Luke, comic genius, basically says that he gets some kind of eaten by worms disease and just dies. There's actually a Jewish um, historian guy called Josephus who writes about this very event and kind of backs up what Luke is saying, but kind of puts it in a slightly more um, understandable context. He says that uh, Herod actually got sick and died over five days of some kind of stomach complaint, whereas Luke might just be kind of extrapolating this story to make it um, sound even funnier and more exciting than before. He's probably a preacher, and so... um, He's making his point. But Herod died because he had claimed to be God and hadn't acknowledged that he wasn't. But in the midst of all of that story, there is one key verse. 
Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnestly. It means seriously. It means without ceasing, fervently, intent, sincere, and with intense conviction. They were praying that God might move and that he might do it again. The reason I say that is because by the time we're in Acts chapter 12, Peter has already been in jail two or three times, depending on how you want to read the earlier texts. Peter has already been thrown in jail and persecuted and taken on trial for people saying to him, you've got to stop preaching about Jesus. And yet God has sometimes through kind of normal, understandable ways seen him released and other times miraculous. There's one point in chapter 5 where Peter is kind of led by an angel out into a courtyard and told to just stand there and praise God. And then he gets kind of re-arrested. They've seen it happen before and they are asking for God to do it again. Do it again, Lord. Save our friend, our leader, our brother. Get him away. They know that James has been killed. They are dealing with the grief of that and the loss of their friend and brother and leader. And now this other friend and brother and leader is in jail and they are desperate and so they are crying out, Lord, do it again. They also know that Stephen was stoned to death. Massive rocks thrown at his head until he died. And so they are asking and they are crying out to God for him to move and perform a miracle, but at the same time they know and they are living with the pain of unanswered prayer, seemingly that this has gone very wrong. But in the midst of that, they say, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Change this situation. Because faith builds faith. Lord, we've seen it happen once. May you do it again. And at the end of the chapter, we read that the gospel, the word of God, continued to spread and flourish. We launched um, St. Werberg's back in 2017, September 2017. And um, if any of you have gone on our website and seen the promo video, you'll have seen that um, it was basically me stood about here, waving my arms around thinking I was important. Um, trying to sell a bit of a vision for what we were trying to do here. There was a dead pigeon in the corner, but otherwise it was just me. And there was a prayer. There was a prayer, Lord, we've heard of you planting churches, churches coming back to life, community forming. Lord, will you do it again? And so we launched in September 17 with a 6.30 this evening congregation. And people came and it blew my mind. Hundreds of people came to start off with. And we're like, how does this work? What does this look like? What does this mean? God, you've done it. This is incredible. You've answered our prayer. You've performed the miracle. And then we realized very quickly that we actually need to do a morning service so that we can cater for children and, and make that work. And so kind of March the following year, we started a morning service. And, and we had that same prayer. Lord, you've done it once. Will you do it again? Will you start this second congregation? Will you have enough children's leaders and hospitality team and doors team and all of that stuff. Lord, you've done it once, will you do it again? And so then the morning service took some time, probably from March to that September, to really kind of bed in and, and take hold. And then it took off. 
and it grew and it, it outgrew itself and we needed to plant another congregation. And so this turn of this year, we were saying, Lord, will you do it again? You've done it twice. We've seen it happen. Lord, will you do it again? And so we planted our 430 congregation. And we get about 100 people, 110 people to our 430 congregation every week now. And you're like, this is amazing. Lord, we are blown away that you've, you've done it once and you've done it again and you've done it again. And so we're going to keep praying, Lord, will you do it again? Because we have a vision, don't we? To build an authentic community which is Christ-centered that plays its part in transforming the city and beyond. And we are on the move. We planted a church in 2017 and this summer we're going to send Andy and Rach to plant our first church outside of here. First, we've got three congregations. We're now going to plant to St. Francis Mackworth. And the prayer at this point is, Lord, would you do it again? Onto an estate of 10,000 people where currently there's about 10 in church. Lord, we want to see people's lives transformed. We want to see people come to faith. We want to see freedom from addictions and pain. Lord, will you do it again? That's our prayer. That's our cry. We've seen, you've done it before. Do it again. And then this week, I've been reading about the revival in the Hebrides. I don't know how much many of you know about the revival in Hebrides. Back in uh, 1949, 1950, um, revival broke out. Uh, it involved a guy called Duncan Campbell, who was a, a church minister in Glasgow, or Glasgow, depending again on your, where you're from. Um, and he was invited up to the Isle of Lewis to speak. And I've got a transcript here of his sermon that he gave explaining, I think this was done in 1968, of what happened back in 1949. And it's the most incredible read. You can all Google it. Go home and read it. It's long. I'm not going to read all of it out today. But lives were being changed. He says it started with two old women, one of them 84 years of age and the other 82, one of them stone blind. And they were greatly burdened because of the appalling state of their parish. It was true that not a single young person attended public worship. And so they decided to pray. On Tuesday, they got on their knees at 10 o'clock in the evening and remained on their knees until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. 84 and 82-year-olds, one blind, on her knees from 10 till 4, crying out to God in a humble old cottage. Then a vision happened, then they called the minister together, then other people started praying together. Then at one point, someone stood up in a prayer meeting uh, reading out from Psalm 24, and they got excited because this was all about holiness. And so then they invite Duncan Campbell to come and be with them in the church. And he turns up, he turns up one evening to meet with the people gathered in the church. And this is his uh, recollection of what happened on that day. We got to the church about quarter to nine to find about 300 people gathered. I would say about 300 people. And I gave an address. Nothing really happened during the service. It was a good meeting, a sense of God, a consciousness of his Holy Spirit moving, but nothing beyond that. So I pronounced the benediction, and we were leaving the church, I'd say about quarter to 11. Just as I'm walking down the aisle, a young deacon who read the Psalm 24 earlier suddenly stood in the aisle 
and looked up to heaven. He said, God, you can't fail us. God, you can't fail us. You promised to pour water on the thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. God, you can't fail us. Soon he is on his knees in the aisle and he is still praying when he falls into a trance. Just then the door opened. It's now 11 o'clock. The door of the church opens and the local blacksmith comes back into the church and says, Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Oh, that we were praying that God would pour water on the thirsty and floods on the pond dry ground. And listen, he's done it. He's done it. When I went to the door of the church, I saw a congregation of approximately 600 people. 600 people. Where had they come from? What had happened? I believe that that very night, God swept in Pentecostal power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And what happened in the early days of the apostles was happening now in the parish of Bravas. Over a hundred young people, and this is the bit, okay, this is the bit as I read this, my prayer was, Lord, do it again. Over a hundred young people were at the dance in the parish hall, and they, were, they weren't thinking of God or eternity. God was not in all of their thoughts. They were there to have a good night, when suddenly the power of God fell upon a dance. The music ceased, and in a matter of minutes, the hall was empty. They fled from the hall as a man fleeing from the plague, and they made for the church. Lord, you've done it before. Will you do it again? Our nation has a history of revival of people flooding to the church to be aware of the presence of God in their lives. Lord, that is our heart's cry. We pray for Mackworth. We pray for Derby. Lord, will you do it again? But in the midst of that, there's your life and my life. There's you and me. And we face all sorts of different challenges. I don't know what the mountain might be in your life whether it's relational, financial, whether it's about your future, finishing off your studies, moving forward, what does God calling you to do? We all have different things in our lives. Maybe it's um, illness, maybe it's caring for someone that we love, struggles, things where we think this feels impossible. I can't see how this can possibly change in the human perspective. But Lord, will you do it again? I came to faith when I was 17. And at that point, I experienced and encountered the power of the Spirit so clearly, so powerfully in my life. Lord, will you do it again? May I encounter you. Lord, I've prayed for people over the years and I've seen people healed. Lord, will you do it again? Even though I've also prayed for people who haven't been healed and I have lost friends along the way, Lord, will you do it again? Will you move? And may we see revival. I don't know what your challenge is, but I'm encouraging you this evening to say, Lord, do it again. Lord, do it again. What I love about verse 5, yes, the church were praying earnestly. They, were, uh, they had faith to pray and to seek God because they had nowhere else to turn. But what I love about it is actually they gathered together. The church gathered in one place. They met in John Mark's mum's home. 
The James that Peter then talks about isn't the same James that had obviously been killed. James that Peter goes to talk about at this point is Jesus' brother. He goes on to write the letter of James later on at the end of the New Testament. But they gather together in one place. And I, and I think that faith begets faith, that faith builds faith as we start crying out, Lord, will you do it again? Will you move like you've done before? But also I think we encourage one another in that situation. Like where my head goes, and I'm sorry if this is a bit weird, where my head goes is you've got this, they're praying earnestly, so they're praying without ceasing and they're gathering around in one room and they're crying out to God to, to do a miracle, to save Peter from uh, persecution and from prison. And at that point, they kind of set up a bit of a road to write, you, you pray now, I'm going to go off and make a cup of tea. Because of course everything's better with a cup of tea, isn't it? But as they're stood by the kettle, they're probably saying to each other, I can't, I can't see this happening. I think, I think this time Peter is a goner. I think, I, I just, the way Herod is acting, he's going to be killed like James and Stephen have been killed. And then I reckon one of them, and maybe it was Rhoda, bless her, just says, yeah, but, but do you remember when? Do you, do you remember when last time Peter was in jail and an angel turned up and got him out of jail and he had to stand in the, the courtyard. And Do you remember that? Oh, oh yeah, no, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, I, no, yeah, you're right. I'm still not certain. Oh, but, but you also remember, you also remember, we prayed for a blind man who can now see. We prayed for a lame person who is now walking. Do you, do you remember that? Yeah, because yeah, of course, God's done it before. He's moved. And maybe as they're stood around there making their brew, they're just starting to encourage one another and to speak faith over one another. And so that when they get back to their praying, they're going, God, we've seen you do it before. Will you do it again? The church gathers. Not only does faith beget faith, but we encourage one another and that increases our faith. You're here this evening, not by accident, not by because you just think, oh, it's a nice thing to do on a Sunday night. But actually, your presence here is encouraging others to keep praying. We can be a community of people who encourage one another, who tell the stories, who say, do you remember when, Phil, it was just you and a pigeon? And now look at us. Do you remember the journey that we've been on, of the services that have been planted, and God being at work? Let's remember that God has moved before and he will do it again. It is who he is. It is his nature. Let's, as community, push in and encourage one another to keep praying earnestly. Lord, do it again. Can I invite you to stand? We're going to sing um, the song that has the phrase, do it again, all the way through it. And um, I want us to use this as a bit of a kind of rallying cry, a kind of desire to kind of sh call out for whatever it is that's in your life that you want to see God move in. This is our opportunity to ask him to move mountains, to change what we're doing. And as we do this, we encourage one another. We build faith. We look towards Jesus. Oh, who, by the way, do you remember? He was dead and is now alive. 
That is who we are crying out to, to to move again in our city, in our world, in our lives, so that we may see revival, that we may see people set free, that we may see healing and transformation. So let's sing, let's pray, let's ask God to do it again. 